This is Island Waves, and you're listening to Inside the 46th Parallel. Our guest today is David Lee, renowned filmmaker extraordinaire from Atlanta, Georgia. We're here today with David Lee. How are we doing, David? Uh, doing fine. Lovely afternoon. It is a lovely afternoon, no matter where you are. Did you get to see any of that eclipse? Uh, it's coming up uh, late t- tonight, I believe. Yeah, they said uh, the 15th, yeah. 16th. So, of course, I looked for it yesterday, and it wasn't there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I-, I believe it's tonight, uh, late tonight and early tomorrow morning. Yes, I-, I believe it is. Well, today's the 15th, isn't it? Yeah, it yes. is. So they were right, 15th, 16th. I guess I wasn't paying attention. Anyway, how are you doing? Well. well. Good, good. We go back a ways. We're not going to say how far back because that would uh, date us and reveal <laughs> both of our ages, and I'm not willing to do that. So why don't you uh, tell me what you've been up to? Well, um, just living the good life here in Athens. Uh Put together a really good three-piece band. Um, the documentary was completed and uh, sold to a major distributor uh, recently. Um, so on that note, I'm going to interrupt you. We're going to talk about the band because you sent me some really wonderful musical numbers that we're going to get into in the second half of our interview. Uh, but let's talk about the documentary. I think almost half as long as I've known you, David, we've talked about this documentary and the name of it is Time Has Come Again. Correct? Is that right? Uh, t- no? Time has come today, Alex Cooley presents. Okay, all right. So I was wrong. Learn something new every day. Uh, so let's talk about that. You started that a while back. Yes. Um, the Reader's Digest version is condensed. The longer version is uh, goes back to Baker High School in Columbus, Georgia. Um, I want to hear I... this. Yes, start there. Baker High School, Columbus, Georgia. Oh, the stories yes. those halls can tell. Is it? Does it still stand, by the way? Is it still there? No. There's no. now a Walmart on the site of Baker High School. Oh, right. I think one time when I visited down there, it already, I think, wasn't there a new Baker High School? I don't think so. Oh, maybe not. Maybe not. Yeah. Maybe it was the former or maybe it was before it was demolished. But let's go back to uh, maybe not walking the halls, but in relation to the documentary in Baker High School. Yes, I was a uh, 14-year-old sophomore at Baker, and uh, I got wind of this uh, music festival happening maybe 90 miles away from Columbus and Byron. And uh, come to find out, my friend Ralph Frank, a hippie extraordinaire, (laughs) was going. So I hooked up with Ralph and three or four other people from Columbus, and we went over to the festival. Was uh, Tom July. O'Reilly? Was Tom O'Reilly in that package? <laughs> no, Tom was not in that pack. He was with uh, a couple other Baker people, right. Lisa, Lisa Bedicord and Beth Whiting. Those were the and, days. Yeah, and check this out. In my film, there is a short pan of Beth Whiting's father 
who came to Byron Festival looking for Beth oh, and finally, finally found Beth. And uh, this is an older guy. He's got on uh, black socks, white <laughs> sandals, Bermuda shorts, and a button-up white shirt. He was looking for Beth. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, when you went with the sandals and the socks, I thought the Bermuda shorts are next. Right. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. So th- w- what year was this? 1970, July 2nd, 3rd, 4th. So kind of right after Woodstock. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Because that would have been, you said 90 miles outside of Columbus, correct? So that that would have been the same for me going to Woodstock. Oh, gosh, here we go dating ourselves again. But we were young. We were really young, weren't we? Yes. Yes, Correct. not even Correct. old enough to drive. Mm. That's right. right. I had to get a ride with Ralph. Well, so there you go. Anyway, so so you went to this festival. Uh, yes. Um, I was so struck and taken by the proceedings, especially seeing a Hendrix uh, early in the morning of July the 4th. Uh, coming down off some LSD. <laughs> Do we want to say that? Well, I guess we're past the mind. statutes, right? Okay. I, I don't mind. Okay. I don't mind. It's, it's the truth. Yeah. And, uh, it was a vitamin then, right? Yeah. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Correct. And um, I, I've always been a historian, but an armchair historian. So even at 14, I thought, well, I'm going to write a book about this one day. So I began gathering, gathering notes and writing down stuff and clips and newspaper stuff. Well, turn the page to 1980 in Athens, uh, where I came up to finish my undergraduate at UGA. I befriended a, uh, a, a guy who was a documentary filmmaker. And I told him about the festival. And he said, well, to heck with a book. Let's just do a film. Right. So within a couple of weeks, we were talking to Alex Cooley um, on his Lookout Mountain estate at the time. This was September of uh, 2009. We spent four hours talking to Alex about everything under the sun, including the festival. And he was he was some kind of a guy. I mean, he was a visionary, uh, but he was a good guy, too. He was really yes. respectful of his musicians and... Uh, yeah, he he uh, he really did a lot for the music scene. Yes, yeah, R- real nice guy too. Very nice yeah. guy. Um, as a sidebar, Alex was a bit of a of a of a social visionary in that um, he believed in bringing interracial bands to the festival, which there were several off the bat. Uh, and this to was Byron, recently- Georgia. Yes, this is briefly that? based on his, his experiences as a child, where he would see his black maid who raised Alex relegated to another room when they sat down to eat. Yeah. And he just thought and said this was not right. Anyway. Like the hell. That, yeah, that planted the seed of trying to do the right thing when it comes to racial integration when he came into that capacity. So Bands like uh, the Chambers Brothers, Jimi Hendrix, Rare Earth had in, their interracial bands. You see, and that was, was that the, was really brave of him, uh, considering yes. Georgia. If it was New York or Chicago or even Massachusetts, but not even Atlanta, Georgia. We're talking about Byron, Georgia. So yes. that was yeah. brave. That was extremely brave, and brave of the artists to to play. 
Yeah, um, he said B.B. King was real apprehensive about the appearance. And uh, Lester Maddox was the governor of Georgia at the time, who was Lester. a notorious segregationist. But to um, his defense, may I say, he, he, in the latter part of his life, I think he, or at least purported to come around to uh, mellowing out about that. But you're right. I, I didn't realize yeah. he was governor. I knew him when he, not knew him personally, but when he was lieutenant governor. Uh, yeah. Yeah. He wouldn't even allow women in the state capitol with, with sleeveless. They had to wear dresses and they couldn't be sleeveless. So, yeah, he was old school. Yeah. So, um, I guess the biggest thing that came out of this September 19, uh, 2009 meeting is as we were leaving, Alex gave me these two DVDs and they were labeled The Lost Festival, part one and part two. I got home and played them on a DVD player and it was stunning band performance footage and band roll from the Byron Festival. I mean, just jaw-droppingly good band performance footage of a lot of the bands that were at Byron. And uh, that was the catalyst to start working on this as a full-on documentary. Um, so you took the... Okay, so you took that and then... I'm. It's actual film, right? We're not talking about um, video. We're talking film, right? Well, technically it was on a DVD format, but it was from 16 millimeter film. Right. Yes. Uh -huh. That has to be, I know I've seen clips of it and it just, it looks so authentic because it looks like kind of like what I'm trying to do here, marrying a new technology with old school technology. So when you showed me that clip, um, it had the, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not necessarily genre, but the feel of 16 millimeter film with brilliance of new technology married in. Right. That, that, that was real. So when you got it though, it was in DVD format. It was DVD, but again, duped off from 16 millimeter. Right. Um, super high quality uh, reproduction in, in the DVD format. Just great color saturation, great audio. Uh, and the subject matter on the DVDs TV was just, was jaw dropping, just great stuff. And uh, there was a lot of B-roll on it too. Stuff like, you know, people selling watermelons and chicken sure. and ice and uh, rolling up reefer and, uh, you know, just a kind of zany stuff from the time. Um, B-roll stuff. So you took your idea and your vision of doing it into a book uh, with your collaborator who influenced you to make it into a movie. But how does one get started with that? I mean, look at, I look at DVDs and I'm far from producing a film. So what in your background, uh, besides your passion and your drive for wanting to bring this to life in a film format, what, how did you get started? I mean, what was, walk us through the first step that crossed your mind after you looked at this DVD. Well, um, I have a background in radio TV film uh, from UGA and then a master's in broadcast management. And I worked at a TV station as a news photographer. So I kind of brought together these different, um, but yet similar themed experiences and educational background and, and thought this would be a great documentary. And so combination of background, education and experiences, as well as the vision of making this into a documentary. 
Um, so the first steps were what? And I just want to digress a minute here. Didn't we live in a really extraordinary time to be in school where we were able to learn the plethora of skills that we did? It wasn't like everybody's being a specialist or these days being an influencer. You actually learned skills that you could then market yourself to doing things that were productive or income producing. So I always credit that time of being in school that we were very fortunate to have good professors and good universities and that we were able to do that. But your first step, so were you still in school when you had this vision or were you out of school? You went on to your master's. um, Well, um, technically it was at high school when the vision came, but I was 1980. um, I graduated from UGA and I'd gotten a job on this breaking away 20th century Fox pilot here in Athens. That's where I met, Dan Agar, the guy who was a documentary filmmaker. So by that time, I already had uh, experience in radio, TV, film production. I was a photographer for the Red and Black, Mm. yada, yada, yada. Mm. So just divergent background and education and in life's experiences. When I got this, uh, these two DVDs from Alex, I thought this is great source material for a full on documentary. So the first step was what? You took the DVD and did you collaborate with Dan? Yes, this? for a while. Yes, yeah. only only for a yeah, while. Yeah, the, the beginning, um, I think you said, right? Uh, I think the first part of what I saw, it was yes. a colla- or some collaboration. But again, I can't get my head wrapped around the actual, um, you know, how do you go from watching a DVD to actually producing a full-length documentary that's in a film? It's in film format, right? Well, at this point, no. It's still in DVD format. Right. Yes. Okay. Um, um, I just well that that was the the two DVDs that Alice gave us was the centerpiece of what we thought there was other stuff out there, footage out there, which there gotcha. was, and there is. Yeah. Um, I began to network with different people, band managers. And when the word got out, people were sending me eight millimeter and super eight millimeter free of charge film mm-hmm. that I had duped off in the DVD format. Right. And um, then we did the trailer, which was narrated by Chuck Lavelle. Yeah, I saw that trailer. Yeah. Um, well, we're real proud of that trailer. That was uh, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, so to speak. Yeah. And uh, it really captures it. It captures it well yeah, in a very succinct you. way. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, if that's a, a preview, I mean, I think, you know, we've been talking for years about getting the film here uh, to uh, showcase at uh, City Cinema. And one of these days where you're going to cross that board and you're going to bring it here. And I still have that dress <laughs> I said I'd wear the red carpet with. Uh, I'd wear it with you when <laughs> walking right. the red carpet <laughs> with you. But, I, you know, I would love to see it. I, I just think this is great. So, again, how many years we're talking about, okay, high school, and then the, the DVDs came to you. So this is, I can't even, what, 30, 40 years? How many years have you been at this? Well, um, as far as the Alex Cooley Presents documentary, 10 years off and on. Not a steady slog of 10 years, but 10 years off and on. Um, um, I sold the business uh, shortly after 
I'm sorry, shortly before we interviewed Alex, so I had money in the bank, so to speak. So I, so I was able to to live and do this 10 years worth of work without having to actually go to work, you see. Aren't you lucky? Yeah. So you were not yeah, a st- you were not a starving artist. Not at all. And then there's always there's always the varsity, so or not anymore, right. but <laughs> yeah. Okay. Or the um, Waffle House. Yeah, that was where Dan and I differed. Uh, our styles were drastically different once it came down to nuts and bolts. And Dan had to actually work and I didn't have to work. So he kind of had to bow out for to make money and I didn't have to. So I, I kept plugging away with it. And uh, so it was a, a simple twist of fate, as Dylan says, um, the way this all worked out, really. So the film came together. I, I call it a film. I guess, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. I was thinking about this earlier. Do- the word is documentary, but this is yeah. a rock uh, on rock music. So would it be appropriate to call it a rockumentary? Um, it, well, it depends on how you define rockumentary. I think um, it's a made up word, Dave. Uh, well, then, th- th- here again, <laughs> I'm, I'm always careful to ask, define your term. You know, so. <laughs> well, I, I, I made it up in my, I mean, there is a word. People do say rockumentary. I didn't invent that word. Okay. Yeah. But in my mind, when I was walking Millie earlier <laughs> down to the <laughs> gate, I was thinking, okay, is it a documentary or a rockumentary? Well, it's rock music and it's a documentary. Yeah. So, but you know what? I, it, it may not, knowing the quality of the film and what's in it, uh, I think the appropriate word for it is documentary. Okay. Yeah. yeah. If it were on Netflix, it would come under documentary. Absolutely. I, in my opinion. Or, yeah. or the theater. So, uh, when did you, when did it all finally come together where you said, okay, this is it. This is the finished product. This is the name of it. And the second part of this question is, was Alex Cooley still alive when it did? No, mm. no. Alex died in December of 2015. Sad to say. Yeah. Um, we interviewed Alex several times and I think one or two of the interviews is on Vimeo, I believe. If it's still up there. It's a really good interview. Um, but I had reached a point after 10 years of working with it, that I was at a point where it was going to take really deep pockets and really legal acumen to pull this off. And I kind of said, well, I take it as far as I can take it. And then one day I was at the, uh, Georgia square mall here in Athens and I was just strolling the halls and there was an Ollie group there, which is a, bunch of retired UGA people that get together for stuff like, you know, rock climbing and gardening and all this. Well, there was a documentary film club in there. And I looked over and saw this big banner that said documentary film club. So I said, well, that's interesting. So Mm -hmm. I went over there. At Georgia Square Mall? Yes. Yeah. Okay. It was a recruiting. It was a recruiting drive. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so I said, what do y'all do here? They said, well, we screen a documentary film once a month, and then we critique it. And I said, well. Oh, wow. I said, I "I have a documentary (laughs) film, and and I produce a documentary. They said, well, we'd love to see it. So they put me in with uh, Mary Miller at the UGA Richard Russell Archival Building, which is a state-of-the-art, brand-new repository for uh, archives, essentially Georgia archives. And so she said, let's just have a full on screening in our auditorium. 
And so I said, sure. So at the Richard B. Russell Auditorium or at the Fine Arts Auditorium? The Richard B. Russell Auditorium. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, that it was it was a standing room only crowd. And then I did a almost a two hour Q and A session afterwards, and there was a guy from a distributorship in the audience, and he gave me his card and said, "Call him." So from that point on, it went from me kind of saying, "Well, I've done all I can do," to wham, the, you know, major distributorship sort of thing. And what year was this, David? This was see twenty nineteen. January so just before COVID, yeah. Yes. So, um, wow, talk about a twist of fate in uh, Brer Rabbit yeah. landing in the Briar Patch there, uh, or yes. the Cabbage Patch. That was just the right place. And that's usually I remember when I first started in this industry, and that's what they said: it's just being in the right place at the right time. Yes. So that yes. was good. That was really good. Uh, so, did you have a lull because of COVID, or has it been moving forward? Um, well, once it was given or sold to the distributorship, it, it's all in their hands. Um, so, oh, wait, stop. It was sold that you did say that earlier. So that kind of escaped me there. It was sold to a distributorship, like a, a movie distributorship that's going to package it and so that it'll be in theaters. Well, time will tell. Time will tell. Um, who's the can, can you divulge without, uh, in, infringing on anything um confidential who's the distributor or is it a major company or it's it's a major company i can't i can't fair enough can't yeah can't, yeah it's a major distributor yeah yeah, yeah. that's great and so yeah. when have you last heard from them again you know I, I think we've all kind of been in a i call it the great sleep for the last two years i mean you know, we've been productive and things have been happening, but it's been like a blur. So have you, did you have a lull during COVID or have things been progressing and moving forward? Well, I am in contact with these people that bought the film and they keep me appraised of where they are with everything. Um, they, they're, they're, on, they're, long story made short, they can't determine uh, if there's still a market for kind of music from that period of time, which I told them there most certainly is. Okay, then they would have their head in the sand because that's all you hear now. Everything is retro, and this current generation yeah. thinks they were reinventing the wheel by discovering our music. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, um, um, Before I sold it to these folks, uh, I, I had several screenings, two in Atlanta, and once this is a smaller screen, two in Atlanta, one in Columbus and one in Athens, and the feedback was universally: my kids would love to see this Absolutely. stuff. You know, on a film. Absolutely. So I, I told I told these. So I said, "Look, there's no doubt in my mind. There's a market for it." But another another legal ramification is that there's so much layers of licensing and copyright involved that it can make it more expensive than they anticipate they can return their money on. And specifically, bands like the Allman Brothers, for example, where they're almost all deceased, and their estates don't get along with the other estates. You see, so yeah, isn't that it's sad because the original artists would never have had that happen. Uh, yeah. it's really a shame what happens posthumously. But um, it's um, the good news is that they probably have the legal abilities to to get through all that mud and uh 
maybe get on the other side of it, I would imagine that they'd have, you know, the deep pockets to have the the legal beagles that would sort through all that. And again, a lot of those, I don't know, maybe how 80% of the people that are on that film are deceased or at least retired. So yeah. uh, I wonder how... Yeah, the Allman Brothers, yes, there is an estate, but I wonder how many of the others there would be. Um, do you feel confident, though, that it's going to push through and, and get released? Well, uh, intuitively, based on the fact they bought it in the first place, they had to believe in something on the positive side of things. Um, um, at this point, they're still doing legal research and still looking at marketability. Um so it's just a matter of waiting. It's all in the balls in their court now, so to speak. And so, but I did indicate to them that there are lots and lots of people that were at these festivals that are just literally dying to see this footage before it's too late, you know? So just the sheer number of hundreds of thousands of people um, should indicate that that market alone, much less their children and other hippies around the well. country internationally you know, too i know up here in canada people love music like that and yeah. they didn't necessarily have the exposure um to all of that you know uh well not just the era of music but uh like for example you said the almond brothers weren't there but for example the almond brothers southern rock uh in fact coming home today two of the two of the radio uh broadcasters uh I guess they they their can shows and they pull them in, but they're all retro music that they're playing, and right. that's that's what this current that's what people like. People our age like it because it feels good, and we're, you know, we can relate to a song, and you know, it's inside of us, it's in our heart, or it's a recollection. And like I said, the young people think they're inventing the wheel by discovering our music. So, I think yes. it's it's win and win. Um, so, going back to the words you sold. Uh, these are not your words, but you sold you sold the film, you sold the pub, the, the the movie, but you didn't sell your rights to it, did you? Um, to a certain extent, yes. With the caveat that if it, if it comes to feature release, I will get a percentage of ticket sales as well as executive producer credit on the film. Good. Now realize. The only rights that I actually purchased and own that I was reimbursed for was the rights to the footage on the trailer, specifically the 30-second Jimi Hendrix snippet and some other uh, footage that I purchased that was just for prospectus applications. For example, um, there's some... Uh, Footage of the Chambers Brothers that was shot by INA, a film French crew, that I bought the rights to just for the trailer. The trailer to present to potential uh, purchasers of the films. That that makes sense. So it does make sense. Uh, yeah. We're going to take a short break, and when we right. come back, uh, we're going to talk about who was on that, who was on the bill at that concert. Uh, sure. I, I don't know if you can recall who, who the artists were, but uh, that will be fascinating to talk about. So we will be back with David Lee. Okay. Uh, you are listening to Island Waves, and this is Inside the Forty Sixth Parallel. Mm-hmm. 
This is Island Waves, your voice from Prince Edward Island. We were born before the wind Also younger than the sun Yeah, the bonnie boat was one As we sail into the mystic And we're back with David Lee, filmmaker extraordinaire and all-around pretty great guy. Uh, <laughs> how's it going? Are you still with us, David? Still you, here. You know what's amazing? I was just thinking during the break, um, you are in your home, 65 miles northeast, if I recall, of Atlanta, Georgia, in Athens, Georgia, place very warm in my heart. And <laughs> I'm 4,000 miles away, and we are talking in now-now time. And isn't this great? I mean... Yes. You know, I'll complain about learning new technology, and it's not like the old stuff. But, I mean, who would have ever thought with, you know, on a cell phone with this firewire (laughs) hooked into a board that's going into a computer that's going into another computer is going into Audacity, then getting uploaded and going onto a platform. It's incredible, isn't it? When technology works the way it's supposed to, it's a miracle. You know, it's ever-evolving, ever-changing, and always progressing, and that's what makes it fun. Uh, But, oh, my gosh, getting there is such a journey, as you well know. Yes. Yeah, I mean, well, just in what we were talking about earlier with um, in the first part of our interview, um, just in – okay, so uh, refresh my memory again. Uh, The concert was 1970. But the the format or the the um, medium that you used, uh, you were able to take sixteen millimeter footage and amalgamate it or transfer it, if you will, to a mod at that time modern uh, uh, medium, which was DVD. So, you know, where would it go now? Like, what would they? What are the next steps? Uh, how will it? If, if it's- if it's right to feature, really, it'll be on full-on 35 mil giant, uh, giant negative format projection capability, the kind you see on movie theaters. Oh, that'd be great, huh? is, Yeah, giant size negative. So format. you think they'll be able to take what's on what you've provided to them, and I guess in, it would be post-production because it wouldn't be anything currently shot. It would be them taking that and then making it into 35 millimeter. Wow, I can't even imagine yeah. it. I can't even imagine how you'd fill that space. And but the good news is that there are engineers out there that know that technology and would very much do it. And the good news, I think, David, and correct me if I'm wrong, is you're now in a budgetary arena that, if it does come to fruition, those people can actually do it. Yes. Yeah. So, so you will you will manifest your dream. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you're the executive producer. Yes. And you're going to take me to the premiere because I have the gown. <laughs> <laughs> you promise. <laughs> well, let me let me ask you: What is the next? Um, you mentioned you have a local uh, film screening uh, organization there, correct? Well, remember we talked a couple of years ago about um, finding a way to cross the border with your film and debut it either yeah. at the City Cinema that does these types of. Uh, 
these types of movies. It's it, we. <laughs> I live on an island with about 140,000 people. We have, I believe, one movie theater, maybe two, and I think actually one in Charlottetown, one in Summerside. So I stand corrected. Uh, and then the other one, and the only, and, and I've not been to either of them, uh, but the one that I do go to is called City Cinema. Uh, it's uh, just carved out in a little building uh, that you would never know it was a movie theater from the outside. But inside, it's our kind of people that are sitting there watching the artsy films, the avant-garde, the stuff that doesn't get into uh, uh, the cineplex, so to speak. Right. And that's where I thought. You... The other thing was I'm. Uh, we have a uh, an organization here, and I could be wrong with it, uh, uh, their acronym, but I believe it's IMAC. Uh, or image uh, anyway and that's remember we talked about that also when they did the film festival I sent you some things that I thought maybe and again this was all pre-COVID so I'm not even sure anything's been done in the last two years but uh, I always thought that would be a real good vehicle for your film well what what is the film festival held up there well they usually do it annually but again uh, you know we've been in the big sleep uh, so for two years and it feels like three, I, for some reason, I think this is the third season, although it's the second chronological year, but well, by the calendar, but, um, it's, it's an annual event and it's, uh, it's a big one, uh, you know, for us, for Atlanta, Canada. Um, and again, I think that would be just a wonderful place. It was just always getting it here. Um, and the legalities of, 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 of it being shown here. I think with you selling it and having, you know, the, the big guns behind you as in a, uh, a, you know, an actual big company, um, that would not be an issue then. Not really. Um, and the caveat here is it might not come to feature release, Virginia. Um, so I, I can have screen. I'm having a screening here in Athens, June the 4th. Under controlled circumstances. Um, what does that mean? <laughs> that mean that Are they going to check everybody coming in to make sure they don't have recording devices? What does that mean? Um, no, it means cell phones prohibited, recording prohibited. Okay. That's the main, that's the main caveat. Yeah, um, but you know, there's people like me that always find a way to sneak it in. Um, I haven't, well, perhaps. It's called, but, it's called dark journalism. <laughs> Okay. All right. Well, no, no, no. Um, I'm, 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 I'm fooling yeah. with you, but I do. I've gotten the tap on the shoulder before. Actually, I had my stuff confiscated, if you will, uh, by Andy Kaufman's goons when he was at uh, when he performed at UGA, and I had you know an interview. So uh, you're supposed to be able to, as you know, you're allowed to tape a certain excerpt of the show. But no, I got the not only the tap, but they confiscated my my equipment. So. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, um, so where do you see this going uh, in reality? I mean, is it a squeaky wheel gets the oil, and are you on the phone with them like once a week, once a day, or well, just letting I, it rest? I know where they are in the evolutionary wheel of making this happen. Um, they're they have the resources to move forward ever so slightly, ever ever so incrementally. Um, it's just, again, it's a matter of getting all the licensing and all the copyrights together and the clearance of one person whose name shall not be mentioned, no. um, who shot the 16 millimeter film. Um, 
That's a big stumbling block right, right now. Right, but they can take care of that. They well, can, wait, it, wait, David. They can make him an offer. He can't refuse. Well, like a horse in they, the head, a horse head in the bed, or something. Uh, the horse head would work. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking, I'm thinking more like taking him out. You know, than, <laughs> we can't talk about that horse head. I think everybody knows the, <laughs> the yes, reference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a good one. I'll make him an offer he can't refuse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I could have been somebody. I could have been a contender. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but so that's, anyway, that's not stopping yeah, um, you. Anyway, it's um, it's an uphill slog, but they if they didn't believe they couldn't make it work, they wouldn't have bought it from me for a real no. tidy sum, real tidy sum. So um, oh, that's good. So it wasn't just yeah. shut up money to make you go away. It was no. there's a genuine interest. Exactly. Well, uh, maybe you need yeah. a publicist or a ma- not a publicist, like an agent that's going. Yeah, what about that film? What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> you know, somebody um, that's constantly chomping at the bit there. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I have an entertainment attorney um, here in Athens, and he he's the main connection to these these folks that had the, that bought the film. Is that Michael Crane? Yes. Yeah, he's pretty good, yeah. isn't he? Yeah, he is. He is. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. yeah. And he, he's pretty he's pretty sharp about getting things done too. Expensive, but yeah. <laughs> but he's pretty good at that. Yeah. So, uh, do you? Uh, I guess do you have a, a an end date in this? Uh, I mean, certainly you're not giving up. My goodness, really. You know, think about this. This has been. I mean, I know you haven't been at it every day, and and it's not an obsession, but it's been your baby for. I can't even count the years. How many? How many decades now? Four? Well, since 09, that's 09, the 19 is 10. Well, no, but since you had your first vision in high school. Oh, that's 1970. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. yeah. Is that 50 years now? (laughs) I don't want to think about it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Because we're not giving age. We're Jack Benny. Um, So, the film, uh, the documentary, the movie in the making is Alex Cooley Presents Time Has Come Today. Yes. How did you come up with that title? Well, um, Alex Cooley, when he was doing all of his um, shows in Atlanta and around the Southeast, his tickets, his tickets, and his advertising was always Alex, Alex Cooley, Cooley presents. Present. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then w- after seeing this killer f- band performance of the Chambers Brothers doing "Time Has Come Today," which was a anthem anthem of that period of time we thought just call it that this those two things you know yeah and and uh the the song time has come today by the chambers brothers really brings it all into focus well i think after the next break i'm gonna dig that song out and play it yeah i think that would be a good way to end this segment uh, you have moved on, though, and we're going to get into that in the second part of our interview into, well, you've always been a musician, as far back yes. as I know. Uh, there was always David Lee and his guitar strumming along at any given <laughs> uh, backyard barbecue, if you will, or wherever there was a crowd of people. And as far back as I know you, David, you've always been picking and grinning. So, Indeed. Yeah. yeah. So you want to talk a little bit about the music? Yeah, um, again, this goes back to Baker High School. Um, I purchased a flute with the intention of selling it for a profit once. <laughs> and um, I got down in my the basement of my house, my parents' house, and I started playing Jethro Tull. 
and I put the flute together. I within within no time I could find the notes that was playing right along with the tall stuff just from by ear. So playing the flute is not easy. I've no. never been able to do that. You got to purse <laughs> your lips and blow at the same time. It's very hard. Right. Yeah. It, it is. Yeah. It is <laughs> very hard. Yeah. So it, it it came to me very easily, Virginia. And so from that point, it was like, well, I, the flute was by, by ear, piece of my piece of cake. Then I said, well, my father bought me a silver tone guitar uh, when I was a baker. So those two instruments, I just kind of meshed and welded together in my own uh, proverbial style of playing. Now, I don't write original songs, but I do covers, really good covers of obscure, really obscure good stuff. We're going to play some of those songs on the show. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Uh, yeah. The one, again, I, I'm bad on titles and it, the hour yeah. isn't my favor, but uh, the one about the mirror. Shadows in the Mirror by Shadow. Chris Isaac. Is yes. that who that is? Okay. Yes. So yeah. in the in what you sent me, there was Shadows in, Shadows in the Mirror. Is that it? Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. So there were Shadows in the Mirror, and then there were Shadows in the Mirror uh, number two, I think it was. So is it this? I, I, I've been recording it, uh, and I didn't take the time to differentiate if they were uh, between them. Is it the same song, but just a different style? Because the production seemed a little different in the second one. No, there's five songs all total on that file that I sent you. Okay, um, I think I got four. Anyway. Not, oh, yeah. yeah, the one might have been separate. Uh, there was um, Shot uh, not Shot Through the Heart. What was it? Um, one was Bob Dylan's Things Have Changed. That's the uh, one I another, didn't get. Okay. I never another, got that. You'll have to send it to me. Another was uh, Under the Milky Way by a band called The Church. I didn't get that one either. One was uh, Lucinda Williams. Uh, I can't remember the Places name. Places in the Heart, one. was it? Um, I can't recall the title off the bat. Yeah, we'll get that. Yeah. We'll get that, and we're going to play them uh, a little later on in the, in the program. Um, so... Again, going back, you've always been picking and grinning and playing. So what moved you to wanting to uh, form a band? And are you doing that seriously and you're going to be performing in, in, at different venues or is it just for fun? No, it's it's performance. Um, Good. Not, not writing original songs. The fallback on to me is, is live performance. Um, have people clapping and singing along and getting paid for it is a great feeling. Um, Absolutely. I, yeah, I had no illusions of selling, you know, covers to to Nashville or anything. So that takes that out of the out of the equation. You know, um, it's nice. Uh, you mentioned getting paid for it, but I think it's nice when we can move into a quarter of our life where we're doing things for complete pleasure and not just uh, for commerce. It's it's a whole different arena. Right. You know. Right. So that's good. And and again, no aspirations of recording contracts or things like that, that it's purely, purely enjoyment and purely, purely driven by, by passion. And it's a whole different equation from when we were younger and, you know, we had a, we were responsible for having right. to, you know, make ends meet and put bills and food on the table and pay bills and stuff. And that's the part I'm enjoying. What I'm enjoying about this podcast is not having to post hours and not having to, uh, have that commerce aspect of it breathing down your neck. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So have you, so who's in the band? Uh, there's myself and then there's uh, Jason 
Elder, who's a terrific classically trained keyboard player, multi instrument and multi instrumentalist kind of guy. And then there's a guy named Tim Adams, who's a really good guitar player. Uh, this is a three piece, stripped down three piece. And uh, we've got a really good sound. Uh, we feel pretty confident. We're all experienced seasoned musicians. Strings and, and keyboard or drums? Yeah. 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 No, no drums. I, I was listening no when I was yeah. recording the music and the, uh, the instrumental is just great. And is that you on lead vocals? Yes. Uh-huh. Good. Well, we're going to take a quick break and we're going to play some of those songs right now. And we'll be back talking with David Lee. You're listening okay. right. to Inside the 46th Parallel on Island Waves. Listening to the Overnight Angels on Island Waves, and this is Inside the 46th Parallel. 
And we're back. This is Island Waves, and you're listening to Inside the 46th Parallel. And our guest today is the one and only David Lee. Is it David E. Lee, or is that just a figment of my imagination? That's a figment of your imagination. (laughs) So it's just David Lee. Okay. So we just heard from, um, we just heard Shadows in a Mirror, the song written by Chris Isaac. And the band, the band, your band is called the Overnight Angels. Yes. What up with that? Well, uh, long story made short, I'm a super big fan of Ian Hunter, um, Monta Hoople, David Bowie, sidekick, and he has a very obscure song, again, very obscure song called Overnight Angels. Okay. On a, on a very obscure album, and that's where that, that title came from. He's not going to sue uh, you now for the name, is he? Huh? <laughs> I said he's not going to sue you now for using his na- the uh, name. <laughs> It's a small world. I mean, it's a large world. It's a large world. Well, so. yeah, but wouldn't that be great? Look, think of all the uh, notoriety, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Local bands get sued by, uh, yeah, by Ian big name, by Ian Hunter for use Ian of the Hunter. Overnight <laughs> Angels. So, is that yeah. how you identify yourselves as the Overnight Angels? Yeah, sure. And, and it's three yeah. of you. Did you say three? It's three piece. That's a lot of music on there from just three people. Yeah. So, who plays what? Cool. Tell me. Uh, and there was no overdubs either, by the way. It's uh, Jason on uh, keyboards, Tim on really good electric guitar, and me on vocals and acoustic electric guitar and flutes. Oh wow, yeah, it's really good production. Who did your production? Uh, Tim did. He's a he's a he's a studio recording engineer also. Yeah, isn't that fun? Yeah. Or as they told us in school, if you want to earn a living, get a skill like production. Yes. You might not always get yeah. the spotlight. Anyway, uh, yeah, so uh, the group gets together, and uh, do you guys have a studio space that you practice at? And then, yeah, so have you had any gigs? Well, no, we're waiting to get everything totally in place, um, which is it's it's almost in place. The demo has been done. I'll send you a copy of that for your own off the off air perusal. That, That would be great. But that also has five of the songs, Virginia, condensed into about five 45 second segments it might be easier to digest like that oh, but the kind of like a demo old, tape uh, like when you right. do yeah mm-hmm. the demo has been done it's, it's really sharp excellent uh, we're now uploading the demo to four different uh platforms once that's done i'll have the business card redone that's when we'll start shopping it out and about and I feel confident we can get really good paying jobs uh based on the strength of our performance in the demo it's nice having a little pocket change, doing what you love. Yes. And again, yeah. you know, it's not like the drive that we had, like, oh, we're going to get this big recording contract or we're going to no. go to Nashville no. <laughs> or we're going to be the next, oh, dare I say, Eagles or uh, <laughs> Beatles or whatever. We're going to sell out Chase Stadium and be on the Ed Sullivan Show, which is now right. Stephen Colbert. Well, you might, oh, you might make it to Saturday Night Live. Yeah. You yeah. never know. Well, you probably right. would have to, you know, uh, whenever I play something uh, by what I call true artists that were, it's not smoke and mirrors and chains and uh, thongs. Uh, I always make that <laughs> different. <laughs> but you may have to do that. <laughs> you, may, <laughs> you, you may have well, to, uh, yeah, don a wig yeah. or, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't. I have no illusions of stardom. Number one, number two, I'm financially secure. I don't need the money. Yeah, it's a labor of love, basically, and but, a passion, and passion exactly. But it's nice getting, getting 
getting compensated for your labor of love too, you know? Yeah. That's how I feel about this podcast. When people talk to me in the beginning about wanting taking it to monetization, my first impression was no, you know, I'm, I'm not a hooker. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so my main goal was not monetization. It was getting it up and running. And as you know, you've known me all my life uh, or <laughs> all of our lives uh, from when we knew each other. Um, it's always been a passion of mine. So this studio is, is like therapy for me. And I'm sure the film and your music is for you as well. And I think it's just a wonderful place that we, we were able to get to. Yes. yes. You know, and, and like I said, without the trappings of what we had, you know, I miss being young. I miss the, the merits of youth. And then I don't. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, uh, so getting back to the film, we're going to circle back around. Um, I think I asked you who, uh, or I should say the concert, not so much the film, uh, who performed at that okay. concert? Okay. Um, now, now bear in mind, it's, it's three festivals. It's, uh, 1969 in Dallas, 1969 in Hampton, Georgia, in 1970 in Byron, Georgia. So it's a, it's three festivals. But I have a list here of all the actual performance um, by, by, by a given band. This doesn't include B-roll. Okay, so right. ready to roll here. Um, Almond Brothers Band, John Sebastian, B.B. King, Chambers Brothers, Mock the Hoople, Spirit, It's a Beautiful Day, Poco, Broco Harum, Rare Earth, Mountain, Grand Funk Railroad, Johnny Winter, and Richie Havens. My goodness. You had me at yep. Almond Brothers. <laughs> yes. I once got to, well, you know, many times. Um, you know, talking about the Almond Brothers is like talking about REM or people that live in Florida with Leonard Skinner. They were the, the band we, we kind of had on our back porch or in the backyard, um, so to speak. Uh but to be on a lineup like that, I, I one of the times that I saw the Almond Brothers was um, kind of tantamount to uh, the concert in Byron or perhaps the one in Hampton. It was in a place, this was post-Woodstock. Um, I think it was 1970, I'm not sure. Uh, it was before I came to Atlanta, and uh, it was at Watkins Glen. Oh, yeah. yeah. So it was the Almond Brothers, the Grateful Dead, and I think it was the band. Yes. And it was just, I mean, it was where you went for a three-day festival. And unlike what people say that, oh, it's people, a bunch of hippies slopping around the mud. It was none of that. It was a wonderful community of musical talent and wonderful, peaceful people without any issues or problems going on. You know, we had tents and there was plenty of drinking water and everybody was well-behaved. And there's nothing like getting up you know, after taking a little siesta uh, or sometime in the middle of the night and hearing the Grateful Dead playing or jamming with the Allman Brothers or all three bands playing together. It was, as you know, from being in, in the concerts that you've gone to, it was like an experience that uh, I don't think Coachella could even come close. Yes. So I think we were very, very lucky. And with that kind of a lineup, so did you go to all three days? No. Well, I went to all three days at the Byron Festival I did not attend the Dallas Festival no. nor the Hampton Festival, just no. the Byron Festival. Where's but I was there 
for all three days. I remember the word, I remember the name Hampton, Georgia, but memory is escaping me as to where it is. And Byron would be Southwest uh, Georgia. Um, if, if you're looking at a map of Georgia, picture Macon as the center of the state. And Byron would have been about 50 miles due west of, of Macon. Okay. And so in the, Ham- in the interior. Well, Georgia is all interior. And Hampton is east Hampton of Atlanta, been, right? No. No? Hampton would have been north of Macon by about maybe 50 or 60 miles. Well, wait. Macon is only about 45 to 60 miles from Atlanta, right? It's southeast of Atlanta, is it not? No, it's no. It's, it's, no, no. Okay, David, geography was not my major. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And with so, 159 counties in the state of Georgia, uh, you know. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so, uh, so, so they went on simultaneously, or in the same year, or. Um. Dallas and Hampton in 69, and then Byron in 1970. Okay. And did Alex Cooley uh, produce all three, or just the ones in Georgia? He did all three. Wow. But the one in Dallas was co-produced with a guy named Agnes Wynn, whose family and him now own Six Flags over over Texas and Dallas. Um, hmm. So... I wonder yeah. if he made a film and sold his rights. Well, um, I talked to Agnes about the Dallas show, and he apparently him and Alex had a, some kind of a hoodoo, a kerfuffle, and he was not real forthcoming with information. Um, I don't know why, but I you don't. I've since heard there was a falling out with the two of them. Yeah, it's um, kind of the part and parcel with the industry, though, isn't it? Yes, yeah. it sure is. And, and yeah. I mean, Alex Cooley was a force to deal with. He was a great yeah. guy, but he was uh, he was a giant, giant force in the industry. Yeah. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And you didn't want to cross paths with him. Right. right. I, I've never seen the downside of Alex Cooley, but, you know, things circulate. And you did not you did not want to be on his ill side. No. <laughs> but that's true with anything. You'll never yeah. work in this industry again. That's it. Yeah. That's it. So anyway, so what's you what's on the immediate horizon for David Lee? Well, uh just keeping a smile, uh mm-hmm. playing my music, um, hoping this will come to fruition. Um uh, right now I'm doing uh long term certified substitute teaching. Um in some local schools, mulling, returning this teaching maybe just to get out of the house because I enjoy teaching under my own my own conditions. That being high school level, advanced placement, social sciences. In the so, public school system or private? A public school. There's yeah. a lot more money in public school than oh, private absolutely. schools. Absolutely. Yeah. However, private schools don't have near the social problems that that public schools do. But but. If you're in AP classes, you're generally shielded from all the, the bad stuff. In the you are absolutely right. Without yeah. you know going too far into this, I, I I I too did my stint not only in teaching but then in substitute teaching, yeah. and uh, yeah. I found that when you were with the general population at the first period, 
uh, it was he's divided into threes. The the ones that didn't want to be there, the ones that were in the middle that would look either to the to the left and you know not want to be there, or to the right and would want to be there. And then you had the academic. But as the, as the day wore on and the and the class size got smaller, and you got to the uh, what do they call that? The more academic students, not the general yes. population. Uh, I remember I walked into one class and uh, I said, I, whatever I asked, and they, somebody said, yes, ma'am. And I thought, oh, my God, I'll, I'll give you my house. Thank you. You know, <laughs> as opposed to having pencils thrown at you. So, right. uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, I, the thing about teaching or being in school, because I, I like being a student, too. Uh, I love. Uh, and that's what, Yeah. Yes. And that's yes. what's the exciting part about, you know, getting involved with this whole podcast, which to me was just a word. Uh, for three years, I looked at that word and I thought, you know, I can't do this. Um, but the learning, when you're in that mode of learning as a student, uh, it's just such a wonderful feeling in your in, in your body, in your being, in your brain. Uh, I have a little pet saying, when when you cross everything off the to-do list, or there's nothing left to learn or you're unwilling to, well, then it's time to just lay down and die. Yeah, you know, but um, and the other part of that, uh, you know, what you said about teaching is working with young people is so refreshing. Yes, you know, uh, they're eager. Most are eager to learn. Uh, They think we're fossils, so anything we tell them, they're either rolling their eyes or they're thinking, you know, we've got the wisdom (laughs) of of uh, the Methuselah or something. You know, I don't know. (laughs) I know we're geniuses. And again, and what bridges the gap? And so many people our age agree. What bridges the gap, I find, is music. Yes, yes. You know, it's amazing. Um, I've got a couple of grandkids. So, yeah, I'm dating myself. But I could be a young grandmother, too. Um, and what's really interesting is uh, is watching, you know, them take to music. And it's not just the new music. Uh, my uh, daughter's boy, Hayden, uh, when he was young, I spent a I spent a lot of time with my grandkids, and so when I'd put them to bed, I would sing songs to him. Uh, one of them was "Beautiful Boy" by John uh, Lennon, and yes. the other one was "Father and Son" by Cat uh, Stevens. Yes, and uh, <laughs> I had to explain to him. Uh, Grandma didn't write those songs. <laughs> this is who did it. <laughs> because we were in the car and some song came on. I can't remember what it was, but I started singing along with it. And he's like, Grandma, you're on the radio. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I think it was Bette Midler, actually. And I'm like, no, 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 no. That's her song. I'm just singing along to it, you know. Um, so, you know, you got to be honest with them. But even the youngest one, you know, he's three now. And it's amazing. It, 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 you know, it's just an unspoken something how music unifies. And, and that goes back to what you said about teaching, working with young folks for the most part is so invigorating and, and learning from them. Yes. Yeah. You know, anything I learned from about a computer or an iPad or anything technological, except for, you know, doing the studio here, I've learned from them because number one, they're eager to teach you and they're happy that somebody wants to hear what they have to say and that they can and they're not rolling their eyes or get impatient with you like maybe your kids would be. So, right. yeah, it's right. really good. Right. Really good. Yeah. yeah. So you're living the good life. Yeah. If uh, if this comes to future release, Virginia, I'll be um, probably in Lake Lucerne, Switzerland, counting my bank deposit <laughs> and then uh, traveling the world. <laughs> David, please don't get <laughs> cryptocurrency. 
No, I won't. (laughs) You know, I've heard so much about that. It's like, you know, people that put their money in tangerine. I'm like, no, 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 no. I want to see my money. I want to go into the bank. I want to know it's there. And cryptocurrency, no, thank you. I mean, I'm, you know, whoever wants to do it, fine by them. I don't care. I'm not judging if that's what you want to do. Um, I kind of like the system, you know, I'm not, you know, I mean, everybody uses debit cards now, which is kind of a cashless society and that's okay. It took me, you know, yeah, yeah. but I mean, it is what it is, but cryptocurrency, no, thank you. It doesn't, to me, it just doesn't make sense. Uh, Uh, There's a saying, money talks, crypto bullshit walks. (laughs) uh, There's no way I would put any money into a system that you can't go and count it. And it's out there on the internet somewhere. It just boggles my mind. Oh, I know. know. And it's not even real. So David, safe to say, so when somebody calls and says that they're your long lost relative and that they're being held prisoner, unless you put um, $5,000 into a bank account in cryptocurrency today, that wouldn't be you that would rush out and do it then. Well, not cryptocurrency. I said, go ahead and take them. I got today. such a call one time, a long time ago. It was about 10 years ago. And my it was when I had my first grandson and he was still like two or three. And somebody called and said that they were being held prisoner in a Mexican jail or something and that they were my grandson. And I let them do their speech. And then I said, yeah, let me talk to the um, let me talk to the law officer. I, I knew what I knew what, what was going down. And then all of a sudden, the same voice turns into an English-speaking yes. <laughs> um, Bobby from England. I'm like, okay, you're in Mexico, but the the guy, the jailer has an English accent. And then after he got done with his whole speech, of course, I uh, let off with a barrage of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and well then, yeah. <laughs> and then capture the call as you can, because you can star something, uh, 57, I think, and it captures the call. So if you ever wanted to, say, report it to law enforcement or because it, 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 OK, it, it just boggles my mind that people buy into it. But it's sad. Um, yeah. When I was at Clark Broadcasting in Athens at WGAU and WNGC, about once every three weeks, we would get the story about someone that was flim-flammed, and you're going to laugh, David, it was always the Beachwood Shopping Center. Somebody came up to somebody in the parking lot and said, listen, I found a wallet, and there's $500 in it. Let's go into the bank and put it in there, and we'll each put up five, you know, that, that whole flim-flam. And it was always right. the same story. And I would yeah. think to myself... Who does this? Uh, <laughs> you know, who, who does this? But, you know, that's a sad statement because people have a good heart, yeah. I guess. Or, you know, maybe they think they're going to get rich quick. I don't know. But what goes around comes around, I guess. Anyway, it was great talking to you, David. Um, good luck with the with – the, let's – Good luck with the documentary. I can't wait to see it on the big screen. And I would like to get it here at City Cinema or part of the uh, film festival that goes on here. So at this point, I have to ask one more question. To make that happen, do you now have to go through the channels and the powers that be? Because when we talked, I don't know, five years ago, six years ago, uh, we were going to try to do that. Uh, But again, there was the legalities of the border. So... By having it out of your, so to speak, out of your hands into a major company like that, are they calling the shots and you no longer can say, come here or send me the film and say, hey, let's let's uh, let's do a showing? No, I was allowed to keep two copies of this, one on a hard drive and one on a on a DVD uh, disc and allowed to show it under, like I said, carefully controlled circumstances, which 
I have one coming up here in Athens, June the 4th on a Saturday at a friend's house outside. Oh, that's so nice. It's conceivable that the film festival up there could be done again with you know fairly strict security protocols. Absolutely, um, and th- I think that's a given. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, this all yeah. you have to do is this. Uh, what I did when I had the screening at UGA was I hired security people whose job it was to make sure nobody whipped out phones and started you know screening the foot, like, recording the footage. So um, that's that's really all there is. So um, you could you could actually do a showing here. That would be great, David. Yeah, yeah even if we yeah. did it at City Cinema. I was going to say on that note about security, don't show it in New York because you know that's what they do, yeah. and then oh, you know, know, and then they'll sell it on sell it to you on the street, you know, and give you yeah, the night and yeah. give you the nice face discount, of course. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's it's on the street by the time by the time the film is finished. You know? Absolutely, you know, and and of course you see everybody's head and you know people getting up and you know, climbing over you, but if for some reason right. it sells, it sells. Right, right. Anyway. Well, listen, check, check on when the act, that, that film festival is up there. I will do and that. It's workable. I could come up there and show it. That um, would be great. And give a lecture. Yeah, and, oh, and, and give a lecture. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'll do a Q&A. No oh, that would be all. great. That would be yeah. wonderful. So the documentary name is? Alex Cooley presents Time Has Come Today. Be watching for it, folks, because it's going to come up here and hopefully in a theater, not necessarily a Cineplex, but we'll take a Cineplex. They serve alcohol now anyway. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess with legalization, you know, who knows? Um, but anyway, that that's yet a whole other subject and a whole other show. Um, but yeah, I would love to see this, you know, I'm in your corner for this, David, I've said it all along. It's not for any other reason. I share your passion and I've known you long enough to know that if you're still chomping at the bit with this film, it's gotta be a good one. And I think people need to see it. And you know, time has come today. That's the name of it, right? Um, Yes. Yeah. And it is timely. And again, I will say, um, the music of that era uh, first of all, the artists that you named should not have been forgotten, should not be forgotten. Yes. Uh, people should know who they are and they should know that, you know, Katy Perry didn't do the song. Uh, not anything wrong with Katy Perry, but that it was the Chambers yeah. Brothers or that it was, um, uh, you know, some of the artists that you mentioned or the Almond Brothers. Right. There's, you know, nobody's going to replicate that. And they should know. And I, I don't even know if there are any surviving Almond Brothers any any longer. Just a couple. Um, the drummer, J-Mo, and oh, then uh, Dickie Betts. Dickie Betts, yeah. Yeah, I've all. heard about that. Chuck Lavelle yeah. was never with the Almond Brothers, was he? He was with yeah, he C- was. He was something. And then when I met him, uh, actually, he went, came to the Blue House when he introduced, uh, when they did that, I still have it, the, um, the album was called Sea Level. Well, yeah, that was the name yeah. of the band too, but it was the, the cover. I can still see the cover. In fact, it's in this room somewhere. Uh, you know, all good, all good musicians, right? All good people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and uh, yeah. Randall Bramlett was in Sea Level, uh, Athens guy. That's right. That's right. And, and I think the name of that album was Cats on the Coast, I believe. Well, the one I'm thinking of, and I don't know if it was their first or second, it had like a teal cover, and then there was like a gray artistry on the bottom. I don't know if it was a picture of a, a, an ocean or a sea, but uh, the name of the album I thought was Sea Level, or maybe it was just their name on it. I'm not sure. But that would have been, oh gosh, that was that was back when I was in Atlanta, back at WRFG, and then over to Quixie. 
Uh, uh-huh. But yeah, I met them because we interviewed them for WRFG. And then we had, as is common, and they call here kitchen parties, but we had uh, porch parties and living room parties where everybody just, anybody with a guitar or a voice or a harmonica would come on a Sunday afternoon and we would just play all day and then go to Chubby Decker's for burgers. You got it. <laughs> that was a way of life. Okay, well, it was good talking to you, and uh, wish you lots of luck with the band. Uh, the band is, uh, I want to call them Fallen Angels? No? Yes? The o- o- Overnight Angels. Overnight Angels. You know you know where my head's at, the Fallen Angels. <laughs> okay, the Overnight Angels, and we're going to play some cuts from, uh, from your demo, well, not from the demo, but from what you did in the studio. Uh, and uh, we wish you luck with all of this, and like I said, I... I've got my gown ready, and I'm ready to take right. that red carpet walk wherever it is with you. All right. You take right. care, David, and okay. uh, we will be back with more of David Lee's music here on Island Waves. You've been listening to Inside the 46th Parallel. It was really great talking to you, Dave, and best of luck with all of it. Uh, thank you, Virginia. Good talking to you, too, and uh, feel free to... Uh, uh, question me future any future questions you might have. Well, and may I also say if anyone, any of our listeners would like to uh, uh, ask David a question or find out more about the movie or, or the band, book the band, you can write to us uh, at Island Waves, PEI at yahoo.com, or you can follow us on Facebook at Island Waves PEI. It was really great talking to you, David. And let's do this again sometime. Maybe the next time, you know, we're 4,000 miles away right now, but next time you could be sitting right here in the studio. That sounds good. And you know, you know your way around a board. So, yeah. Okay. Take care. Okay. All right. right, Good night. Good night. night. Bye bye. Or au revoir, I should say.